Today on Against the Grain. The United States is a strikingly unequal country. The Republican Party is rightly credited with consistently aiding the wealthy. But historian Lily Geismar argues that's just half of the story. She examines the key role played by the Clinton-era Democratic Party and the Democratic Leadership Council in widening inequality through micro-enterprise schemes and development zones, free trade policies and charter schools, while gutting public housing and welfare. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. It's easy to attribute the promotion of market-based policies and private sector investment to the right, to figures like economist Milton Friedman and politicians like Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. But one of the biggest shifts toward the market in the last decades of the 20th century came from the Democratic Party under the leadership of Bill Clinton, claiming that poor people simply lack access to credit and to capital. Clinton and the New Democrats championed small entrepreneurship through microfinance and empowerment zones while dismantling public housing and education. It's a story that has not often been told, but fortunately that's now rectified by Lily Geismer's book, Left Behind, the Democrats' failed attempt to solve inequality, published by Public Affairs. Geismer is Associate Professor of History at Claremont McKenna College. She's also the author of Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. Lily, in considering the growth of inequality in the late 20th century, the focus tends to be on the Republicans and their drive to pass policies that benefit the rich. Why have the Democrats been left out of this tale of increased inequality, by and large, and why has that been a mistake? That was actually one of the big the big issues I wanted to address when writing it, which is that so I think often the story of both inequality, but just generally the story of political history told from the um, the 1970s onwards has been a story about the Republican Party and the rise of Republicans, and the way that when Democrats feature into the narrative, it's often that they're in, um, they're kind of weak and in defense and everything that they're doing is kind of in reaction to the Republican Party. So that's one way the narrative gets told. I think the other side, especially when addressing questions of inequality and things around the market and capitalism, is the story that Bill Clinton is exactly the same as um, Ronald Reagan. Um, And there's this kind of neoliberal convergence. And one of the goals that I had in the book was to kind of both show that the Democrats had a strategy for addressing inequality um, that in some ways intensified it. But the other side of it is that there actually is are, are critical distinctions between the kinds of neoliberal policies that someone like Reagan promoted and those of, of Clinton and the Democratic Party. And we'll get into some of the nuances of the different kind of ideology that characterized the Democratic Party. But I wonder if you could set the stage Uh, by talking about the crisis in the 1970s of the welfare state that led to members of the Democratic Party to search for a different way. 
Yeah, so the demo, so the 1970s are this, the moment in which my book starts, and it's a critical kind of moment for both the nation and the party in the sense of, I think it, it was really a crisis. And in many ways, it actually, there's clear parallels to this moment today as inflation was rising, there was an oil crisis. And I think that for the Democratic Party, what it came to symbolize w was that um, the Keynesian model just wasn't working. It wasn't creating the kinds of economic growth that had really been sort of critical to the nation's prosperity, but also the Democratic Party's success. And so it leads to that's one sort of side of the crisis. There's also a sense that the kind of welfare, the traditional welfare state just isn't delivering. And there's a group of Democrats who come into office in 1974. They're called the Watergate Babies. The name sort of assumes that they were opposed to Nixon, but actually who their big main opponents were, what they were acting against was actually the Democratic Party. And a feeling that the kind of great society New Deal approach was outdated um, and that the party was too beholden to that, that style um, and needed to kind of rethink its the ways in which it sort of addressed issues of poverty and inequality, but also the way that who it sort of envisioned as its core constituencies and particularly were were critical of the Democratic Party, the ways in which the Democratic Party was beholden to organized labor and wanted to shift the party in a new direction away from those kinds of those older um, those older kinds of relationships. And they still believed in in that it, that in the ideas that it's government it's government's responsibility to help people in need to create equality they just increasingly start to see different mechanisms such to get there when you say that they saw the need to shift away from organized labor who did they envisage as their model constituents so they speak it, and this is something I actually address in my first book as well, um, which was about suburban liberals. They primarily see as the the core con the constituency of the Democratic Party and who it should be really sort of securing as its base, uh, really sort of uh, suburban knowledge workers um, and kind of more moderate suburbanites who they understood to kind of be this critical kind of sort of worker of the future. And I think that it actually goes in two ways. So one one on the one hand is this idea of that's the kind of base that can be that can be a more stable base for the party. But the other thing that they start to in increasingly believe in, and this goes to their bigger vision of kind of shifting away from the kind of older, in some ways, the older sort of model of the Democratic Party and liberalism is towards a different kinds of different types of political economy. And that leads them increasingly towards a, a more post-industrial model, in particular this idea of, of really rooting the, um, the nation's um, economy in new sectors. So what, what becomes known as the kind of new economy, but especially in the tech sectors, finance and free trade, and they become early proponents of a kind of more globalized economy in the 1970s. But that also leads to kind of that. So that has an idea of kind of there's a there's an economic component to that, but it's also focused on sort of political strategy. And those are the kinds of sectors that many of their own constituents constituents worked in or the people that they were trying to target. And so the two go hand in hand in trying to kind of create a new base for the party, but also a new mechanism for um, for economic growth in the country. Was there a political component in wanting to move away from feeling beholden to the unionized working class? Absolutely. I think that, that that's becomes really critical to the a lot of the messaging. And there's this whole idea. I mean, so when when 
Gary Hart, who's one of the the early um, sort of standard bearers of this idea, and they be, they early so they're called the Watergate Babies, and they get known as the Atari Democrats. But when he comes into office in 1974, he says, "We're not a bunch of little Hubert Humphreys," and that's actually sort of an explicit reference to Humphreys' relationship to the labor movement and and this notion that particular kinds of Democrats had become so. That was really there. That were so like basically beholden to um, to organize labor, and so they wanted to kind of move away from that as those ideas. There's 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 either somewhat hostility towards labor, or just sort of ignoring or not addressing questions of labor um, in a lot of their kinds of um, platforms, and then also in their in their core kind of economic agenda. How did the ideas of the new Democrats differ from those? that we associate with the right, um, those of Milton Friedman or Margaret Thatcher? So, I mean, so some of these ideas and what my book traces as they become, they're, they're articulated early through in the 1970s through these kind of Watergate babies who become the Atari Democrats because of their, their connect, connection to tech. And then it really takes off with the new Democrats and the Democratic Leadership Council, um, who, which gets founded in the, 19, the mid-1980s. And the critical difference is they, in many ways, someone like Reagan or Thatcher believe in the market as a both a means and an end that they sort of see see the free this faith in the market to kind of do do its various different work to help and and it's less kind of this idea of sort of helping people. It's much much more focused on kind of individual responsibility um, and kind of individuality, and so that's a more traditional kind of neoliberal model. The New Democrats still believe in certain ideas of kind of 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 some mechanisms of that it's a responsibility of government to help people. They just increasingly see them using market means to get there, and so it's more about that's the kind of the means and the methods to get to kind of traditional liberal um, traditional liberal ends. They also don't it, they don't while the um, by 1990 the DLC has part of its platform this idea of the 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 goal is to expand opportunity, not government. They still believe in a space for government, and the idea really is they see government as um, as the catalyst. So it's the responsibility of government to kind of connect the public and private sectors. So that still has a place for government in a way that kind of the traditional Thatcher or Reagan approach um, does not. So they don't they don't express they express hostility to kind of government big government bureaucracy. Um, and that's one of their critiques of of the great society approach that it was overly bureaucratic. But they don't they're not anti-government in the same way that someone like Reagan or Thatcher was. So would it be wrong then to conclude as as some have that the path the Democrats ended up taking, the new Democrats who emerged in in the 1980s particularly, was a rupture from the Democratic Party tradition of the New Deal. It's certainly been framed that way. How do you understand their relationship to that longer historical tradition? This is where the academic in me comes out, where it's complicated. So on the one hand, there is, there is a, there is, I, I think it actually stands for, for forms of continuity and change. And so this, some of this has to do with how you interpret the New Deal. And in many ways, there, 
actually building on a New Deal approach. The, the New Deal itself always was a, and scholars are increasingly looking at this, had kind of some of the roots of neoliberalism in it. Um, it advocated it advocated shoring up markets. I mean, that's the kind of, in many ways, that's the, when they, particularly when they embrace the kind of Keynesian model. They also really believe um, in public-private partnerships um, and other kind of mechanisms such as a kind of me- mechanism of delivery. The so to me, that's those are the places of continuity. I think the critical difference and rupture comes in the ways in which they want to connect um, market the markets and government. And so, um, so the in my book, I look at a lot of this kind of idea of doing well and doing by doing good. And the traditional New Deal approach was doing well, so so building up the the economy and then having sort of compensatory welfare programs that's attached to that, so big government programs. The the New Democrat approach is to kind of combine those things, and the idea is that the kind of growth of the you both the that you can kind of grow the new economy and that's going to help people, but also that you can use kind of traditional mechanisms. Um, not traditional, actually, new economy mechanisms like finance from finance, tech, and um, and trade, and those will actually um, those can actually help poor people as well. So it's kind of fusing those together, and that to me stands for a different kind of approach of the Democratic Party. So they're much much more focused on kind of using market means than previous generations of Democrats were, and especially the um, when you look back to the kind of New Deal or Great Society models. One of the things I looked in the book, I look at, they're very critical of the New Deal and the Great Society, um, often in their language. And they have this constant mantra that kind of the solutions of the 30s can't meet the problems of the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. They update at each decade. But one of the things that's important about it is that actually they're, much of their criticisms of the New Deal and Great Society aren't necessarily accurate depictions of, of the New Deal or Great Society, especially sort of over-characterizing how redistributive those programs were. And so I think this is like, um, so in some ways, like the New Deal was never a universal program. I mean, it's always was, it was never universal welfare. It was always based, it's always work-based. So it's actually limited in that capacity. And it wasn't as redistributive as it often gets um, sort of subsequently presented. And the same thing goes for the Great Society, which was not a redistributive program. Um, And so I think that those are some of the ways that you can see more continuities too. And so they're, they, they, they sort of rhetorically position themselves as a separation. But if you actually sort of, if you actually look more closely, there's more continuities than might um, initially appear. Interesting. I'm speaking with historian Lily Geismer. She's the author of Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You mentioned a few minutes ago the Democratic Leadership Council, and I wanted to ask you what were its origins and why did it become so influential? The DLC or Democratic Leadership Council is this sort of fascinating organization that no longer is in operation, but in a in the moment of the late '80s and early '90s, came to hold a, a disproportionate amount of power for how small it was, and it was founded in the. Um, in the aftermath of the 1984 election, after actually literally at the Democratic Convention where Walter Mondale, Mondale was nominated, um, by two different kind of strands of, of Democratic politicians. One was these these sort of Watergate baby members of Congress 
who really wanted to shift the party much more towards this kind of their model of kind of economic growth um, and felt that the, the going back to the party was too sort of beholden to these sort of special interests and saw that that was what was holding them back. The other component of the, the DLC was a group of um, Southern Democratic governors um, who felt that the party needed to shift more to the center in order to capture the kind of suburban voters, um, moderate voters in their in their states. And so this group comes together to form the Democratic Leadership Council. It's primarily it's it's its founders are all white men, um, both from mostly from the South. Also, there are some from the Midwest and the West as well. And their real goal, and this is something that's important, I think that the Democratic Leadership Council gets a lot of got a lot of attention for how they wanted to shift the party's kind of um, electoral strategy, but they're also deeply ideological, and they really believe in this kind of market-oriented approach, um, and that's going to kind of be that's going to help the economy, but also help the future of the party. So they come in the mid 1980s. They are founded, but really what helps them to take off is in the aftermath of the 1988 election when they kind of double down on this approach. Um, one of their big their big decisions is that the, for the Democratic Party to sort of hold, be able to, to have any kind of salvation in the aftermath of this these three successive uh, losses is to focus on the presidency so that, that the Democratic Party needs to restructure itself to sort of focus on winning, winning the presidential elections. But the other big thing that happens is they um, they decide to name they have a executive director and founder Al Fromm, but they decide to name as their um, they always have a politician as their kind of the figurehead or, or, or president, and the person that they name is is Bill Clinton. And so this fusion of kind of Bill Clinton taking um, coming in um, leads both him to sort of national political prominence, but also really helps the DLC gain traction. So and that that's really what leads them to having. A, a large amount of power. How important is Clinton in shaping the politics of the Democratic Leadership Council, the New Democrats more broadly, and how central is his eight-year presidency to this project of theirs? I think Bill Clinton becomes really critical, and so it's not that my book is not just a, a book either about the DLC or about Clinton, but in some ways it's sort of this, this connection of their their fusion and so Bill Clinton had been the governor of Arkansas um, first in 1978 he, he loses office and he comes back in 1982 and he is in Arkansas doing a lot of the kinds of um, economic programs that the DLC was sort of advocating for especially around economic development sort of moving Arkansas to a more post-industrial economy also trying out more market-oriented approaches to address poverty um, and um, and inequality in the state. Um, he was a big, an early advocate of welfare reform and school reform. And also um, in the book, I look at how he was advocating for things like microenterprise and testing out these new experiments. And he, that aligns with the kinds of things the DLC was doing. He was an early member, um, but he doesn't really come into the forefront until the late, um, until 1990 when they name him their, their head. And I think one of the things is that he doesn't just sort of become a puppet head, but he actually shapes the DLC in various different ways. And one of the things about Bill Clinton, I mean, is, is that he's much more effective at selling their message um, than than they were. Um, he had, I mean, I think that's the thing for whatever else you can say about Clinton, especially in the moment of the 90s. Um, he was an incredibly effective politician and he was able to speak to a lot of different constituencies. And so because of his kind of Southern roots, he had this part of him that was, um, that had ties to, to George McGovern. So he had kind of 
seemingly lefty, leftist bona fides. I think the other part of him um, is that he had this side of him that was was really sort of policy oriented and would and so he could he both advocated he understood and advocated for policies and in, in new kinds of ways and that becomes really critical to the democratic the democratic leadership council sort of um, having an, a, an ability to say that they stand for something different and they're going to represent this kind of new this this new approach of the party. The other thing that happens is in once Clinton wins the nomination in um, in 1992, he selects another DLC New Democrat to be his running mate and in Al Gore. And so together, that's kind of this that to, usually, you know, it's not the approach that uh, presidential candidates take when they're naming a vice president to have someone who has similar similar is from a similar place, but also has similar kind of ideological convictions. But that kind of together sort of strengthens their hold on the Democratic Party. And I think um, to the last question of how important they are, I think it's critically critically important. And one of the things is that they're they're really committed. It's not just about winning the presidency. It's really about is about shifting the ideolo ideological direction of the Democratic Party um, towards this approach. So it, I think that that's actually a sort of a critical difference than some other candidates, and particularly someone like Biden that we see who sort of stood for kind of. You know, said it that he was kind of a representative of the Democratic Party. They really saw themselves as kind of shifting the party towards what they believed in, and they reshaped the party platform, and then bring these ideas really into into fru into fruition um, during the Clinton era and the Clinton presidency. I think the other thing I really try to do in the book and to show is that this wasn't, and this goes back to I think your original question about this this different direction. Um, and that so much the stories are told of Republicans. I think one thing that's really important and that I, I was learned from writing it and tried to express is that this wasn't just strategy. So I think there's often this idea when people look at Bill Clinton that he's only, it was only a strategic and he was only doing things to win elections, but he genuinely believed in this and he and many of the people around him really believed in these market-oriented ideas that this was going to, this was going to help people um, and help the country. So there's a real faith and belief in this in this approach. Well, let me ask you about some components of that approach. You mentioned microenterprise. Can you tell us what that actually means and where this idea was fostered and how it was applied during Clinton's presidency? Yeah, so microenterprise, um, which is one element of the under the bigger umbrella of microfinance, um, is an idea of giving small loans to poor people to start their own businesses um, and to become kind of entrepreneurs. And there are many different kind of models for it. The most popular one um, takes place, it takes shape in the 1970s, early 1980s in Bangladesh under um through the Grameen Bank, which was founded by Muhammad Yunus. And Yunus, this idea in the 70s and 80s really sort of takes hold. And I should say credit programs that existed in, in the global south for centuries, and as did the kind of informal economy of helping people start their own businesses, like um, having a cow milking business, those were the kinds of things and, and other kinds of things of sort of selling various different products. But the micro enterprise program that Unis starts is in a peer lending model. So you bring a group of people together and they and they use through peer lending, you create a kind of form of support, but also peer pressure to pay back their loans. And Unis develops this model. He initially wants it. Um, he initially 
develops in, in Bangladesh for men, but then increasingly sort of believes that um, that women are actually should be the kind of base of this approach, um, both as a way to help women um, in a um, in largely in, in Muslim communities in Bangladesh, but also because he believes that women are more responsible and will pay back the loan, will pay back the loans. And Grameen Bank has large success in Bangladesh. They have a 98% repayment rate. So in then so as Bill Clinton in Arkansas is looking for new types of approaches to address the problems of poverty in in particularly in the rural parts of Arkansas, he learns through a complex set of dynamics about this program. And um, and both he and Hillary Clinton meet with Muhammad Yunus. They invite him to come to Arkansas to start a microenterprise program in the um, in the Arkansas Delta that's called the Good Faith Fund. Um, so he Eunice doesn't literally oversee it, but he helps sort of advise it. And the idea of that program is that you could use this idea of micro micro um, enterprise to help poor women who are on welfare um, or in areas that had lost kind of their their base of employment. Um, start their own businesses. So, so the idea of kind of being your own boss, or they sold it as kind of turning your hobby into a job, so that if someone liked to do childcare, they could start a uh, they could start a daycare center, or they could sell their they if they made good coffee cake, they could sell coffee cake and turn that into a business, and that would become sort of self sufficient. And so it was a way of kind of helping. It's this idea of expanding kind of the entrepreneurial poor, but helping poor people become more self sufficient, where they don't need other kinds of of welfare, be that um, international aid or um, or traditional forms of welfare. And Clinton really makes this part of his platform and agenda in the 19, when he runs for president in 1992, that this is kind of the new types of approaches that he's going to offer to address poverty. So that there's the old solutions aren't working, like this is the kind of new solution that comes in. And it is part of the kind of welfare reform, um, the various different welfare reform bills that um, that the Clinton administration puts forward. Um, it becomes increasingly a smaller part. And, and there's over the 1990s, it becomes clear that microfinance, microenterprise in the United States is not a sort of effective solution. The program in Arkansas does, does, has, has a lot of problems of, uh, of sort of for, for a number of different reasons. But increasingly what happens is the Clintons and especially Hillary Clinton start to really promote micro, micro, um, enter, microenterprise internationally and this kind of new solution to, uh, um, to addressing the problems of uh, global poverty. Um, and Hillary Clinton really makes it central to her agenda as first lady and especially um, in the aftermath of the healthcare debacle um, and then once she's senator and then and then actually secretary of state is becomes a really critical player in kind of promoting the idea of microenterprise and microcredit how unusual was it to draw on liberal ideas from international development you mentioned that this idea of microcredit uh, was pioneered by the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, and then for these ideas to then circle back around from the West back out to the global South, often through U.S. international aid efforts. Well, in some ways, that is a kind of a rare, a rare idea, and that's one of the things that gain attention. That like, look at this. We're taking we're taking ideas from so many different places, and we're taking this notion, something that was international, um, I, and bringing it here. In in some ways, I actually see it as an older model, and it's it's similar to kind of ideas of modernization of theory. Of, and someone like Eunice was very critical of modernization as this approach to economic development in the global south, but it actually had very similar very similar mechanisms. And one of my critiques of um, of something like microfinance is that it 
assumes that something that's going to work in one place is going to work somewhere else. So you're impot you're t with without a lot of attention to particular sort of circumstances and context um, of a various of a place. So when Eunice toured Arkansas, the whole idea was like the poor people here are just like the poor people in Bangladesh. Um, they they you know they want to work hard. They want to they want to be self sufficient. And there are actually a lot of circumstances that make Bang make rural Arkansas quite different than rural Bang than rural Bangladesh that aren't always aren't always addressed. And so some of this idea, it goes back, and I see this as the kind of the part of liberalism that actually does kind of also sort of extends from the New Deal onward, which is very technocratic um, and this sort of faith in a particular kind of expertise to solve problems that doesn't always address sort of the, the various different needs and circumstances. But it comes to hold kind of really um, take shape and, and take hold in the late 90s and early 2000s as, as this new solution. And actually, it, it was a sort of driving factor when I was thinking about this book project because so many of my students around 2010 were so taken with this idea and they were sort of this is the you know this is the, the solution to problems of poverty and so I started to look into it um, and sort of think about what what it was what work it was trying to do. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with Lily Geismer about her book Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality, which is published by Public Affairs. She's Associate Professor of History at Claremont McKenna College. So like the ideas of micro-enterprise, micro-credit, another central part of the New Democrats' agenda was an idea of empowerment zones, that is using tax incentives to draw businesses into impoverished areas. Where did those ideas come from and how did they fare under Clinton? So empowerment zones are this idea that basically every presidential administration um, has been had tried had tr had tried and still tries, um, which is to create a zone uh, where you have you give out a lot of tax incentives and so then that will that will attract business there. It has it's another idea that's actually really interesting as related to micro um, micro enterprise that has kind of these transatlantic or tr transnational roots. Um, it was first it was first proposed in um, in, in Great Britain actually by a, um, a, a left leaning, I think he was an urban planner um, in, to address the kind of um, the deindustrialization of, of various different cities in, um, in Great Britain. And then Margaret Thatcher learns about it and she really likes the idea. And so she 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 um, she adopts a, a kind of that type of program in um, in Britain. The idea then is called Enterprise Zones. And then it actually is a group of um, of conservatives um, who really take it take hold and take the idea, and especially Jack Kemp um, and the Heritage Foundation. And so they are promoting this throughout the 1980s, trying to get Congress to pass a version of enterprise zones. Um, and it comes really close to getting passed a few times, then doesn't come home. But it's actually a bipartisan idea. The Clinton administration. Um, takes hold of it, and especially in the aftermath of the 1992 um, LA uprisings, um, are looking for kind of a new, to offer a new solution to the problems of, um, of urban, um, the urban crisis and urban poverty. So they they adopt it, but they recast it as this idea of empowerment zone. So in, in new, this new language of empowerment, which they think had, which sort of, in some way, sort of moves it away from its strictly kind of um, market associations and more is about the kind of idea of individual empowerment. They also attach it with a certain, um, they, they do give sort of social programs 
as part of it, which is something that the Republicans had not had not um, proposed. And it does it does pass um, in 1993, um, and they um, they name um, ten cities to have these empowerment zones, and they give lesser money to a lot of different other places. Um, and it's a program that is ne- that never really worked in the ways it was supposed to um, for a number of different a number of different reasons. Um, it um, they it becomes hard to get businesses to come in. I think the other thing that ends up happening with a lot of the empowerment zones and like the the place that is the most ex- seemingly the most successful empowerment zone under Clinton is um, is um, Harlem. Um, and many people see that as actually playing a critical role in the gentrification of Har- Harlem. So you attract all these, you bring in all these businesses um, and corporations. And so you have the big, those, those sort of big malls that come into Harlem um, in the late 1990s. But that's also seen as one thing that sort of dr- drove up the costs of Harlem, drove out small businesses and, um, and drove up the rents. Um, and so it's that's both the place that's the most the six the biggest success is also symbolic of the problems of this kind of approach. Um, but every president subsequently has tried a version of it with different types of names, um, culminating in um, in Trump's opportunity zones, which were the most kind of bald um, example of kind of a like a boondoggle for private enterprise. Part of the new Democrats' agenda revolved around not just addressing poverty, but in, in many ways, reforming the poor themselves. There was a huge emphasis on personal responsibility. I wonder if you could talk about how you see Clinton's welfare reform in the context of these market-based policies that were championed by the New Democrats. Yeah, this is, and I think actually the language of empowerment speaks directly to this and these kind of key, these key words. And so one of the things, I mean, Clinton had been a longstanding believer in welfare reform and this idea of kind of a work-based welfare program dating back to his time in um, in Arkansas. And there are a lot of different ways to think about it. And so I think that in some ways, his this approach and this idea of kind of empowering the poor, which is so central to the kind of the way that welfare reform and many of the other program market-based programs get thought about, it's in some ways a different kind of approach um, or way of thinking about poor people than the traditional kind of Republican and, and the, the, the characterization of, of, of Reagan calling, you know, sort of demonizing um, wealth, women on welfare as welfare queens. Instead, Clinton kind of promotes all, sort of all people on uh, poor people and or not all poor people, but he sort of promotes poor people as as much more this kind of um, in rational, hardworking terms that sort of every poor person wants to be an entrepreneur, to have their own businesses and work for themselves. And so just what needs to happen is to kind of give them the tools such to do that. And so I look in the book at all these examples of the kind of valorization of particular kinds of poor people. And that really goes into the kind of promotion of things like microenterprise and making that part of welfare reform, but also things like um, the welfare reform, the idea of sort of work-based welfare is sort of, it's not just about the kind of mechanisms to to sort of help help people get gain self-sufficiency. Clinton talks a lot about the kind of psychological dimensions of it too. And I think that what it ends up doing is to actually sort of shift the line in um, and good and bad poor person. Um, so instead it it sort of set it helps to valorize a particular type of poor um, 
poor woman who is working hard, who's trying to support her family, who's trying to start their own business, um, and at the same time further demonizes people who can't, who who aren't or can't do that. Um, and it has that that kind of effect. So at the same time, these programs are this is happening. Both what welfare reform does is to take away a kind of critical aspect of the social safety net. And this goes to your question about kind of where you see a con where I see a continuity and change of the from the New Deal. I mean, in many ways, what welfare stands for one of the core legacies or core programs that had been left from the New Deal. And it's Clinton who 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 ends it um, and shifts over to this model. But the other thing is it coincides with things like the passage of um, of the um, all the crime bills um, and the effort and the increase in mass incarceration. And so it sort of says like it, it's sort of celebrating one type of poor person while demonizing another. And I think those two things end up working hand in hand. And one place where that plays out in physical space is around public housing, that public housing houses a certain kind of poor person. How did the New Democrats regard public housing? And could you tell us the story of Chicago in particular? I mean, it, in terms of kind of Clinton era programs and how they're perceived, there's a lot more attention to welfare reform, but actually one of the core programs and one that has a real lasting legacy is is around the efforts to, ref, to reform and really eradicate public housing. Um, and Clinton has this idea, I mean, similar to ending welfare as, as as we know it, he also announces that that um, during the 1990s are going to um, end public housing as we know it, and so the Clinton administration adopts this program um, called or called Hope Six, um, which is about replacing the the kind of big big public housing developments or big pro projects that were so iconic in many cities and especially in the city of Chicago, like Cabrini Green and the Robert Taylor homes and replacing them with mixed income sort of townhouse style housing, bringing in shopping centers and other types of things that will kind of remake this, this landscape. And I will say one of the places, so a lot of the book, the types of programs that I look at in the book are more about using market means um, than it is about making a profit. Public The housing agenda actually is about making a profit for the private sector. But what this does to poor, to poor people, I mean, it displaces thousands and thousands of residents um, from their housing. And so Chicago, both Chicago is the symbol of this, but Chicago itself really embraces this model of as they're trying to kind of redevelop their city, that they have these, they have these huge, a, a lot of their land is taken over by these big, these big um, public housing, especially a place like Cabrini Green, which is very close to the loop that was really about seen as really valuable property um, that could be um, that could be more profitable. And so in the 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 the, the it's like in the ideal version of public of Hope Six was the idea that people they, they would tear, tear down something like Cabrini Green. Um, and then residents would have be have the option either to move back or to be given a voucher that they could use in the private the private um, in the private rental market. The what in reality what happens is that um, very very few residents are able to move back into public housing for a number of different reasons. And number one is that they have all these new strict residency requirements about who can live in public housing. That you have to have a, had a job, be looking for a job. So similar of the types of programs that um, are sort of policies that are around welfare reform, 
get re um, get used also in public housing. And then the other critical piece is um, also using ideas from the um, from the crime bill um, with a one striker out policy so that if you were convicted of a crime or had a, re a relative who was convicted of a crime, you were no longer eligible for public housing or for or for um, a voucher either. And so this leads to huge amounts of displacement. The other issue that happens in a place like Chicago is that there wasn't a very big market or, or, or a lot of availability for affordable housing that people could use to, for the voucher system. So it ends up leading to a lot of displacement and a kind of critical resegregation of the city of Chicago. Historian Lily Geismer is my guest. We're talking about her book, Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality, which is published by Public Affairs. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, one way that the new Democrats uh, around the Democratic Leadership Council and culminating in the presidency of Bill Clinton implemented their policies um, has to do with a story I think that we often don't hear, and that's around charter schools. The turn toward charter schools is often blamed on the Republicans, but your book tells a different story. Can you relate for us how the new Democrats' efforts to profit from public schools emerged partly out of Silicon Valley? Yeah, and this was one of the things that was also really, I guess, su surprising and maybe not surprising from researching the book. But I mean, there is this assumption that charter schools are a Republican, sort of something that was implemented by Republicans. And on one hand, Republicans were really late to the charter, the issue of charters that throughout the 19. 80s and 1990s, they were really focused on vouchers, um, and they returned to that as their kind of main focus under someone like Betsy DeVos. But they, the Democrats, beginning actually in the um, in the late, really late 1980s, early 1990s, begin to adopt this, uh, embrace this idea of charters, and it really stands in with actually some of the core sort of philosophical ideas of the Democratic Leadership Council and the New Democrats in the idea that it's it's they still believe in public school. But they want to kind of reinvent public school and reinvent government to make it much less bureaucratic, to make it more focused on standards and accountability, and that you can kind of use mechanisms of the market to make the public sector work better. And that is critical to the kind of the approach of the Democratic Leadership Council and the New Democrats. And Clinton runs on that idea of kind of reinventing government. And it, th there's also a way that one of their, their promotions of the market this idea that the market can bring more choice, and that's at the core of kind of what charters are, are supposed to do. So Clinton is a, um, the Democratic Leadership Council, one of the earliest people actually to promote the idea of charters. Um, and then once Clinton comes into office, he makes it kind of promote, expanding and promoting charter schools, um, in really sort of central to his education policy. Um, and one of the things I should say is when, when Clinton takes office, there was one charter school in, in the United States. Um, so this was a it was a small idea that really does expand over the course of the 1990s. And a lot of that has to do with the Clinton administration's ties to the tech industry. So in the um, the over the course of the 80s and 90s, and so this goes back to the older story of the Atari Democrat, there there's becomes increasing kind of tightening the relationship between Silicon Valley and the, and the Democratic Party and understanding that they can actually be mutually beneficial to each other's success. And especially Al Gore begins to develop these really close ties to um, leading figures in, the, um, in Silicon Valley, especially someone named John Doerr, who was, um, who was and still is a managing um, director at um, Kleiner Perkins, the big venture capital um, firm in Silicon Valley. 
and they um, they realize they have a lot in common. Um, they be, they form this friendship. I should say actually, Al Gore ends up like later post presidency going to work with Kleiner Perkins, but they start to have these sessions called the Gore Tech sessions, where Al Gore like brings members of Silicon Valley to Washington, or he goes to um, he goes to the Bay Area, and they like come together and have these meetings, and they start talking about the issue of schools. And the tech industry always had this. Um, concern about education. Um, I think both this is a idea of both the demo because of the um, this goes back to like old sort of democratic ideas of kind of meritocracy or it's a new democratic ideas of meritocracy, which both tech and the new Democrats believe in. Um, but also there's this real concern that um, that one of the things that's holding the tech industry back and the country back is that there's not a good educated workforce. And so that's on um, that's the fault of public education. So you need to increase public education to have more more better educated tech workers of the future. Um, and that leads them into this idea of charter schools. And for similar reasons that the new Democrats are really interested in charter schools, so is were leading figures in the in the tech industry. Um, and they start to get really interested in how to kind of expand the idea. So um, John Doerr, but especially Reed Hastings, who's the head of um, the founder of Netflix, um, developed this plan, this this campaign to actually lift the cap on charter schools in the state of California. Um, so when the, the charter legislation was passed, there was only allowed there were only allowed to be 100 charters in the state, and they lift that cap so there can be many more. Um, many more charters. Um, and then John Doerr ends up founding a um, a sort of philanthropic fund called the New Venture School Fund that gets really into how to bring more charter schools to scale. So how you can scale up this idea and develop the idea of charter management organizations, which is the sort of idea of having one um, organization, it was nonprofit, run many, many charter schools. And so before this, charter schools were sort of just one, you know, one, these independent organizations, they were called mom and pop charter schools. And then you start to have things like um, KIPP come in, um, Green Dot, all of these big chain chain charter schools that sort of really reshape the landscape in the night, um, in the um, in the 2000s and lead in many ways to the kind of proliferation of charter schools that you can see. And I, I live in LA where charter schools have just been um, have run rampant um, in the um, in the 21st century. The Democratic Leadership Council, which was the entity that really launched the New Democrats, shut its doors in 2011. How do you make sense of that? Was it a victim of its own success? In some ways, I think I think, I think their moment had sort of passed and that they had kind of done, they had achieved what they needed to do. I mean, one way, actually, the public, um, their think tank, the Progressive Policy Institute, that was one wing, that lived on and actually what their big issue is and was and is, is charter schools. Um, they're really, really big proponents of charter schools. Um, but I think in many ways, the, the sort of moment of the DLC culturally had passed, although their their policies have very much lived on and had come have, have come to reshape the basic contours of the Democratic Party. And I see my book deals with it briefly, but a lot of these ideas really come to take shape during the Obama years as well. So on issues of education, especially on the tech industry and promoting entrepreneurship, about bringing in more kind of market-oriented um, approaches to how to governance, Obama really does adopt and, adopt and implement many of those same ideas. Where do you situate Joe Biden in this legacy of the new Democrats who wanted to orient the party toward market-based solutions and austerity? 
Well, it's interesting because Biden was an early member of the DLC. They actually choose not to support him in nineteen um, in, in the nineteen eighty election because they didn't think he was ideological enough. They couldn't quite that he was constantly shifting his um, his position, and that ultimately both is becomes his detri- like a sort of an impediment to him. But that I think also leads to his success later. Um, and I think that. Um, you know, to me, in many ways, Biden, Biden is less ideological and more of a kind of Democrat, of a Democrat's Democrat, and he has really represented the shifts in the party um, over the last um, the last forty plus years. Um, and so, in many ways, I mean, by the if you look at Biden as a kind of the as the sort of representation of the party and its directions and all of its kind of synthesis right now, there. He he um, he did per, sort of adopt and promote those ideas in the when he ran when he ran in you know two thousand and eight and other points, but now has kind of shifted away from them in his approach. And I think that shows that in the last in the last sort of seven years, many of these ideas have kind of gone out of fashion um, of the kind of explicitly sort of promoting of the market. Although I will say I. Biden, so he's not he's not touting kind of microenterprise and charter schools as the sort of solution to the problems of poverty anymore. But I do think um, the Biden administration has taken on ideas of economic growth as critical um, and sort of promoted growth in various different ways. Um, and I think that there's a um, also, I mean, one of the things I think right now that I look at is the kind of concerns about Biden turning back to the Demo- the, the new Democrats um political strategy to some degree of targeting moderate suburban um, suburbanites as the, the means to gain to secure power for the party. And so I think that that is often this that's one another kind of lasting legacy of the DLC and the Clinton era is to show that that strategy is a mechanism for leading to certain kinds of political successes. And I think that in this moment, but there's there, I can very much see the Biden administration taking that on. It's it, the other thing that's really interesting is that um, the one of the the policy director of the DLC, um, Bruce Reed, is now a key figure in the Biden administration. So I think has distanced um, himself from certain ideas, but but does sort of hold some of these these core principles um, quite dear. Well, let me end by asking you, as we assess the legacy of the New Democrats, how you take stock of the way that they changed poverty and wealth in the United States. Is it possible to assess that legacy and what do you conclude? I think they affected it in two critical ways that really came into fruition in the 1990s in the Clinton era. So on the one hand, the ways that they, so there's this way of thinking about the 90s that, that there was more economic growth and a sense of prosperity. But beneath that was um, two ways that they, they um, intensified the problems of poverty and inequality. The one, on the one hand, it was by uh, replacing many of what was left of the social safety net and the welfare system with market-oriented means. So, in the examples of things like um, welfare reform and, and microenterprise, but also with something like hopes replacing public housing with Hope Six, that took away these kind of core supports. And that was that's been really critical in sort of um, making putting poor people in a much, much more uncertain and vulnerable position. But the other side of it was in the mechanisms of economic growth that the Clinton administration promoted, especially kind of tech um, trade, which is really important and, and globalization. 
um, and also in um, in kind of trying to promote um, promote the market through things like deregulation, um, left um, opened up new forms of um, predation that also came to really hurt poor people. So it both affected having lack of jobs and, and secure jobs, um, but leaves ended up leaving people in a much, much more vulnerable position to the market. And I think that's the idea actually with also something like enterprise zones and Clinton has this, this program that um, that he they, the Clinton administration promotes at the end of his presidency called the New Markets Program, which is sort of bringing in corporations to um, sort of say, like saying like, look, there's this potential market of poor people in the United States. Um, and that in my in many ways sort of anticipates what happens with the foreclosure crisis, because you're saying like, look, there's this whole market of poor people to cor to companies that um, and you can go after them. And so I think in some ways that, that that there's many kinds of predation that leads to. But the other thing that's really important is that when you leave people to the um, the um, uh, corporations do not have the same kind of accountability and responsibility that the government does. So one of the things that happens in a lot of places is that once um, once poor people look don't be, don't seem to be particularly profitable corporations move on and that also leaves them without these kinds of mechanisms so the combination of those factors i think end up leaving poor and low income people in a far more difficult position at the end of the 90s than um, they had been in generations lily guys murray thank you for joining us thank you so much for having me on i really enjoyed it Lily Geismer's book is Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. You can find a link to it on Against the Grain. That book is published by Public Affairs. She's Associate Professor of History at Claremont McKenna College, also the author of Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.